Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. Before we start today's show, how does he offer a free beer sound to you? As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that, free beer. Thanks to our friends at Beer52, the UK's most popular craft beer discovery club, you have the opportunity to sip eight free exclusive craft beers from all around the world. All you need to do is to go to beer52.com forward slash wisdom, just cover the £4.95 postage fee and the beers will be delivered to your doorstep. As well as the beers, you get a magazine and a snack as part of the deal. They send subscribers a crate of beer every month, and there's a different theme for the beers each time. You're able to pause or cancel your subscription at any time as well. As we discovered on last week's show, uh, Ben's a big fan of the deal. We raided the office when the lockdown started. Yeah, although I found out that my, uh, my mum traded my most recent box of beers for some eggs. I was on the what? phone to her yesterday... And she was like, oh, you're still getting those beers sent sent to the house, sent to my parents' house. Because I did that originally, so it had arrived for Christmas and just kept the address there because it's nice to have them when I go home. And she was like, yeah, you haven't cancelled it, but don't worry, the latest box I've just, uh, I traded for some eggs. And which, With who? Oh, yeah, that's the thing. I didn't realise that society in Aylesbury had collapsed to that extent that cash no longer had value and they had to, to revert to the barter system. But uh, that's, the world, so. that's the world we're living in now. Yeah. Ten craft beers only get you a half a dozen eggs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, one one sheet of toilet paper, I think. Yeah, you've already heard their voices. Um, I'm Yaz Ryan, and with me over Zoom to, in today's show is the managing editor of Wisdom.com, Ben Gardner, and the Wisdom Cricket Monthly writer Jim Wallace. Before we get on with the show, the, the bulk of which will be a pre-recorded interview with Dom Sibley that was really interesting. Couple of couple of questions. So first, Ben, um, does your Thai diving flatmate have a Wikipedia page? No, no, she doesn't. I mean, she, she, I, I think I probably have beat it up more than she would, which I guess is why I didn't know about it. Um, uh, it's, it's still a growing sport in Thailand, I guess. E- even, even the Thai women's cricketers, who are probably their country's best sporting team, I don't know if every single one of them would have a Wikipedia page, for example. So she doesn't have a Wikipedia page, but she is very good at free diving. So there you go. Wonderful. Yeah. Jim, how's quarantine treating you so far? Uh, it's, the novelty's worn off. And uh, I watched... Uh, have you seen A Quiet Place with Emily Blunt? And I watched that the other day, which probably wasn't the best choice of film to watch because it's sort of um, a horror about what happens when something something bad happens. I won't ruin it, but it's, it's um, pretty terrifying. So... Number two coming out soon. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> so that'll be for next. That'll, I'll save that for next month or next year um, when I'm still locked in. But uh, yeah, I've I've escaped London. I'm at my girlfriend's parents' house, so that's quite good because for a multitude of reasons. Not that I'm killing grannies or anything like that. I, I had a good reason to get out of London. It involved the NHS, so you can't slag me off. <laughs> Any um, hobbies that you picked up? Hobbies. Uh, I, 
I haven't picked up any hobbies, no. Yeah. Um, I would, I'm, I'm a man who already has quite a lot of stupid hobbies, so I'll probably just do, donate a bit of time to them. I've started watching EastEnders. Really? Um, I've never watched EastEnders before, and I turned on BBC One yesterday, and I ended up watching the entirety of the episode. Like, There's a lot going on. I've never watched it before. There's a lot going on. That's what I was going to say. If there was ever a time to catch up, it was now, to, to pinch the whole EastEnders. Yeah, maybe go a bit like how we're watching old cricket matches on the archive. You could go back to sort of Dirty Den and, and Martin McCutcheon, yes. Probably talk about cricket now. So we didn't really talk about it much on last week's show, and there's been quite a few developments in the last couple of weeks, in particular the last few days. So the ECB have announced that there's a £61 million package to help cricket in England and Wales combat the financial fallout from the coronavirus pandemic. Tom Harrison, the ECB CEO, said... It is no exaggeration to say that this is the biggest challenge the ECB has faced in its history. Jim, this is an unprecedented level of support from the ECB and it's encouraging that they've acted quickly but also they've clearly set aside money for both the, the professional first class counties but also recreation clubs yeah. up in the country. Um, I think everyone seems to be saying that, all well, of what I'm picking up from my bunker, is that... Uh, the ECB have done quite well in keeping communications going and they've been quite clear with players, organisations, counties, clubs about uh, the the process they're going through and they've not been rash and sort of made any grand statements to begin with. They've just sort of assessed the situation and they've made the right right call as that's gone on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously it's unprecedented times and... It's a lot of money. Lots of people I've seen have sort of had a few snarky jibes saying, you know, they'd have a lot more money if they hadn't spaffed a load on the 100 and stuff like that. But, I mean, fair's fair for everyone. You can't really predict, couldn't really have predicted what was going to happen. So you can't really prepare for not having any money coming in or not having any live sport. I mean, it's it's pretty unprecedented. So, yeah, I think they've done quite well. I think I've seen stuff about the financial reserves of the ECB having been depleted quite a lot in recent years these are reserves that are normally supposed to account for things like entirely washed out test matches or uh yeah ex- exceptionally rainy seasons which obviously this is way above anyway so i mean they, i don't think it would have quite prepared them for that but i think that they were <clears throat> in a slightly tricky financial situation before now anyway not not tricky that's that's putting it too strongly um but it also sounds like the hundred has slipped down the list of priorities in terms of if they're is not much cricket they can get this season. It sounds like the T20 Blast domestically will be the thing that they prioritise, which makes sense. I mean, the, the, the thing with the 100 is that, um, obviously the thing with the 100 is only eight teams, which is, in a normal year, uh, a questionable thing of if that's a good thing or not. But in a year when it's the only cricket being played would be quite a foolish thing, I suppose, if um, you're not taking professional cricket to over half of the grounds almost at all or high level professional cricket so I, th- I think that is the right call and also I mean they I think they want to give the 100 the best chance to succeed still which is probably next summer when they can actually give it its proper run whereas now if they're not really sure what's going on that's a, a tricky thing to do I suppose yeah and they've been quite clear they've been quite the the statement says something along the lines of we want to focus on what we um do we want to give the punters what they want and what they know basically so yeah it's along those lines of they don't want to launch something at this weird time you can totally get that but also they want to make sure that fans of the game see see some cricket that they recognize probably and don't have to sort of cope with this whole new thing 
when cricket does or if it does come back. As I mentioned earlier, I spoke to Dom Sibley this morning. It was an interesting conversation. He's very honest about what he's thought and felt at various points across his career. Um, we're, we're the same age, me and Sibley, and we played age group cricket in Surrey and <laughs> South London at the same time. So I've known the name Dom Sibley since I was about eight. Um, do, you want, do you want to say the story, Yaz? I've said it before and we talked about it. We, uh, I talked about it with him briefly, not that he remembered it. Dom said he was once dropped off my bowling in an, in an under-11s game. Um, and I, this, this was before the technique changed, so I don't know if it really, uh, <laughs> it really counts. So. Where, was he, where did you snare him? Uh, well, so it was the only game... On the boundary. It was the only game that we lost that season. Uh, he got 85 out in a chase of 115. And this is when they needed about five to win. And he tried to win it with a six, I think. And it was yeah. I was bowling around the wicket. I was being clever. And he skies it to long off who shells. Quite a simple chance. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, anyway, this, <laughs> this is the interview. Hope you, hope you enjoy it. So, first things first, how have you been keeping up over the last couple of weeks? Joe Root said the other day that he's not picked up a bat at all. What are you doing to keep active? Yeah, look, it's obviously a strange uh, situation. And... Um... Yeah, obviously, first and first and foremost, obviously trying to stay healthy and make sure we don't get don't get ill. And then um, through all, through England and Warwickshire, getting you know S and C sort of fitness stuff to do. So making sure I'm staying really active and um, yeah, not just lounging around the whole time. <laughs> do you find that quite hard to do at home? And also with like the you know the the prospect of the cricket season starting seems to be like distancing ever further with every passing day. Uh, no, no, I think you know obviously don't you know. Um, you want to stay active, like as you know, because we're you know sportsmen and stuff, and you used to you know training the whole time and stuff. So you don't want to, you know, I, I personally I'd get pretty bored sitting around doing nothing all day. So I'm enjoying doing some fitness work and um, staying active, and I'm also enjoying spending some time with my family because I've not seen them for um, a long time. I've been um, I've obviously been away for a lot, long part of the, of the of the winter, and also in the summer I'm up in Birmingham. So nice to spend a bit of time with them down in Surrey, and uh, yeah, just nice to catch up. Have you picked up any um, uh, quarantine hobbies? Like I've seen a lot of your England teammates go a bit mad on social media. Josh Butler with his uh, Pilates videos every day, giving cooking tutorials. Uh, Mark Wood with his dancing, etc. You're not getting into oh, I enjoy, any of that? I, I did enjoy the dancing videos. They were good fun. I enjoyed Jason Roy's. That was that really made me laugh. But, yeah. um, uh, no, no, nothing too uh, extravagant for me. Just keeping my head down and making sure I don't get uh, asked to do one of those sorts of things. <laughs> so... Dom, your, your career has always really interested me. So we're the same age and I played youth cricket in Surrey. So okay. growing up, I remember even from the age of eight or nine, there was a lot of hype around you. You were already scoring bucket loads of runs. There was like kind of like a, uh, a myth of this, there's this guy called Dom Sibley. He's, he's, he scored loads of runs. Were you aware of that hype as a kid growing up? And did you have set goals about what you wanted to achieve in the game, even from a really young age? Uh. No, not really. I think, you know, when I was maybe probably about 13, 14 and I started doing the academy sessions down at George Abbott with, you know, the older guys who were playing second team cricket, um, that's when I probably really sort of got my drive to, you know, maybe push on and, and, and maybe want to be a professional cricketer. So I was playing lots of other sports at my school and I was enjoying playing other sports and, um, you know, just like as, as normal, you know, young lads are just like competitive and playing sport and, um but yeah, it was probably around that age where, you know, started training with people who were a lot older and a lot better than me at the time, a lot stronger. And um, that probably sort of uh, fast forward my development a little bit. 
So up until that age, you just basically, you're just playing cricket because you loved it. And, you know, how, how much time did you put into a game? Because I, I do remember that, like, you, you were always in the sorry age groups, if not for a year above at times, um, always scoring lots of runs from memory. Um, was that just like, you basically just enjoyed doing that and it, the, the success came quite naturally? Yeah, I think, you know, also, you know, in the summers, like I had, you know, a few of my really close mates were playing. I, I did play for the year above until, well, yeah, throughout. And, you know, I've got some really close mates and stuff from, from that who I'm still really close with. So, yeah, it was just a case of, you know, having fun playing cricket, which I obviously enjoyed doing. And it was a way of spending time with my mates as well. You almost certainly won't remember this, but we actually played against each other a few times. Um, and you were once joined by bowling. Um, so... <laughs> So this is Downs End against Collet Court, probably 2006, 2007. You got 85 not out in a chase of 115. Um, I remember that game because that's the only game we lost all year. Um, Do you remember any of that? Collet Court, yeah. I remember playing uh, playing cricket against them. And uh, also, I think we played football against them quite a lot as well. I remember remember that day. Like, I've definitely, I remember just having a sense of, I don't know, like, I've never played anyone in any sport who were just so much better than everyone else playing the game and I remember before the game everyone was talking about oh they've got they've got Sibley we've got to get them out early and then I remember yeah you just got we just, we just couldn't get near you so you kind, of, <laughs> you kind of alluded to it already so like how old were you when you thought yeah I've got a good chance of playing for Surrey one day uh, I think you know I, I, you obviously have those you know like yeah maybe 13 14 around then and then I remember at 15 I went to um, I went to Bunbury um, which is obviously like the um, feeder for like the England development stuff, and I did really well there. And um, I think that at the end of that week, I played a club game and got a double hundred for Ashton against Weybridge in a men's game in the Premiership. And um, I remember like people, you know, I remember at fifteen having to do a lot of interviews and stuff like that, and um, people talking about me and stuff. And I, yeah, that's when I thought, you know, bloody, hell, I think give this a bit of a crack because I was doing a bit. I was playing quite a lot of rugby at that time, and it was. I think the school, um, the week gift was sort of like, you know, pushing me to make a decision on what to do and, uh, you know, really focus my attention on one of them. So, yeah, I think that all sort of pushed it into, that, in, into cricket and, uh, yeah, I'm pleased I made that choice. <laughs> was that was that an easy decision at the time? Uh, no, because I loved, I, loved, um, I loved playing winter sports. I played rugby um, for Wick gift and Wick gift took it really seriously. Um, and to be fair, although I... I I probably shouldn't say this, but I uh, we had. I remember when we went on to the England program at 16, we had to sign like documents to say we wouldn't play any winter sport. But I, I carried on playing football for a while. I was a bit gifted, so I was a little bit lucky that uh, I didn't pick up an injury. But I loved I love football. It's one of my favourite sports. So yeah, I'm pleased I carried on. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you did you have a favourite player growing up that you really looked up to, like an idol or anything like that? Um. You know, I think you know when I was sort of coming through my t- uh, teenage years and stuff like that. It was we were very lucky in terms of like we watched that England team that was amazing with sort of you know Cook, Strauss, um, Trot, Bell, Peets, and um, so you know I, I sort of grew up watching that team and they were they were obviously winning every series that they played in. So you know I I enjoyed watching all of those batters in the t- in the top so, you know top five and um, they all were really different. I, I I sort of you know really enjoyed how everyone differently went about their stuff and you know, obviously you had the class of you know easy on the eye of Bell and Peterson was amazing to watch then you had the, you know Cook and, and Trot who obviously I played with Trotty as well so it makes it a little bit more relevant but you know the way that they sort of went about it and they're just amazing run scorers so 
you know, watching them guys and, and obviously, you know, I, I have people from abroad that I like watching. I love watching Virat Kohli, but I think he's amazing. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed watching the England team when I was younger. And like I said, just watching how they all went about it. What was it like then, uh, not only playing with Trot and Bell at Warwickshire, but then getting an England team and playing with Borden Anderson, players you've grown up watching your whole life? Oh, obviously it's a little bit, um, you know, daunting at the time, but, um, you know, they're all very welcoming and stuff and they've been really good and really helpful in terms of sort of passing over information of what, you know, they, you know, what helped, what's helped them and to succeed in that environment. And, uh, yeah, I can't have asked for much more, really. They've been, uh, they've been really welcoming. So you made your sorry first-team debut at 17. You scored that famous double 100 against Yorkshire. You've not finished school yet, and every cricket fan in the country knows your name. That's not something that happens very often in cricket. Um, it's the kind of thing that happens more often in football. Um, did that yeah. pressure on you as a kid? And if anything, does that make it harder for you because so much is expected so early? Uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, some, sometimes sort of chat, um, yeah, I've had conversations with people about it, and you know, maybe it wasn't the best thing for me to happen to me because I, I think at a young age, when uh, I went back to school and everyone was sort of, you know, pumping my tyres up, I, I probably didn't um, work as hard on my game as um, I should have done at that time as an 18 year old, where you can really make massive strides. And uh, I remember uh, that winter following um, that school, I really struggled for the under 19s, um, didn't do very well at the World Cup, and then. Um, decided to play for Surrey through my through my A levels that summer, and I played the first five six games and didn't really get any runs. And um, yeah, it was it was tough. I sort of you know felt like a lot was being expected of me, and then, you know maybe thinking in the winter when I was training that maybe I cracked it, and you know you'd never cracked it in cricket. And uh, I wish I'd learned that um, that lesson maybe a little bit, but um, you know in a different way but at the same time I suppose it's also sort of been good stead and that uh, yeah no it was uh, it was definitely a whirlwind sort of six months then like when when do you think you kind of realized that you maybe weren't working quite as hard as you maybe could have done um was that something oh, I think I think after those games you know I think you know um I didn't get any runs and it was a case of you know I need to go back to the drawing board and work really a bit a lot harder and you know it's it's all well and good doing it once and as a youngster but you need to keep backing it up and proving yourself and uh yeah, I did struggle for a while and I was in and out of the Surrey team so I found it tough, you know, when I came in I felt like I, I put myself under pressure as well as the pressure that was on me in terms of needing to get scores to cement my place in the team and I never really did that, unfortunately. So, um, yeah, that was, you know, that was the story of my time um, after that, um, especially in four-day cricket. I, I ended up playing quite a bit of T20 and did well T20 for Surrey so that was a massive bonus but, yeah, the Red Bull sort of never really kicked on after that. Is that is that why you basically decided to to move to Warwickshire? How did that move first come about, and like, when did you first start thinking maybe I need a bit of a change of scenery here? Uh, I think you know I was just I was in my last year of my contract, and um, I, at the time I was batting five, and um, uh, I was batting five in, in the in the four day lineup. And I've, although although at that time I was never on anyone's radar to play for England, I always I always had it in the back of my mind that. Um, you know, I wanted. That's what I wanted to do. That was always my ambition: is to play for England. And then I knew that that was the only places really it was in the top three that you could at that time, and even still now, I suppose that you could. You, there was chances to play for England, so that was a massive factor behind it. And that opportunity wasn't going to be there at Surrey because they um, they'd signed Stoneman and Borthwick, and obviously Burnsy was scoring millions of runs. So um, yeah, that was mainly my thinking. And I think you know I needed probably a bit of a change of scenery and. 
Um, you know, what I realised with moving clubs is that, you you know, you have to go away and prove yourself again to a whole bunch of new people and that's a new pressure and I think that was a good thing for me, yeah. That's um, seriously backing yourself when, when you're, you're batting five for Surrey and you, you were still thinking at that time, you know, for me to play for England, I need to be batting the top three. Um, where, where do you think you, you got that confidence from? Uh, I, don't, I, I, wouldn't say that, I wouldn't say it was confidence. It was just a case of like, um, you know, just that awareness of the situation. And also, that's always been my ambition is to play for England. I didn't want to just, I could have easily sort of sat around at Surrey and, um, um, you know, batted at five and been in and out. Um, and, I was, you know, that's just an amazing place to play. So, you know, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I've always wanted to play for England. Um, and I felt at the time that that was to, the move to work, the move to Warwickshire was probably going to uh, help me best to do that. A year after your move to Warwickshire, you you become one of, if not the most prolific run scorers in the country. At the back end of 2018, you scored a few hundred in a row, and I remember people uh, kind of dismissing them in a way because they weren't Division One runs. But I remember the attacks you scored those runs against. Some serious bowlers there: Abbas, Archer, Chris Jordan, Matt Henry. What, what do you put that change in form down to? Uh, um, to be fair, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've actually, che- I've been asked this quite a lot and it's, um, you know, I think I was really struggling for form and um, uh, I spoke to Charlie actually and he sort of said, you know, I think, you know, he sort of pointed out a couple of things in my game. He pointed out a couple of things in my game that were, that he thought was sort of, you know, stopping me from from doing well and um, you know accessing the ball in certain areas and stuff. So I made a few changes and I also went and um, had a few nets with a, a guy called Gary Palmer, which has been you know well documented that I worked with him and uh, yeah, sort of just you know hit a lot of balls, um, standing a bit wider and a bit a tiny bit more open, and then it sort of you know gradually you know sort of progressed from there really. Um, and I think. Um, obviously scoring those hundreds I scored 100 against Leicester after just changing it and that was obviously you know when you change something as a player and you've got to get run straight away it makes you you know it's nice to have so you sort of feel that it's maybe working and then it was the case of you know using that momentum and then in the, in the winter after those 300s yeah I was just grooving it and working really hard on making sure that um, you know I was I was feeling really confident come the start of the season. Gary Palmer's worked with quite a few high profile players and he's kind of this mysterious figure this, this batting guru who uh, really helps players careers he advocates quite an open stance right and what do you do you think that's something that could be replicated more traditional batting stances being side on but Palmer's pupils seem to be quite open do you, do you think there's merit in, in that becoming a more widespread uh, trend in cricket um, look, I, I, it's not for me to say, really. I, I, it's not. I'm not someone who's going to try and tell other people how to bat. And uh, I just know that it worked for me at the time. Um, it has has worked for me um, since I've sort of changed, become a bit more open. And I think, um, you know, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed the sessions that I've had with him, and also with other. You know, although I've obviously used him, and that's been well documented. I've also worked a lot with Troy, and I've worked a lot with Tony Frost at Warwickshire. So. Um, you know, I'm all, I'm also wary that he he gets a lot of credit, but I know that a lot of people are putting a lot of hard yards behind the scenes to um to help me get to this point. And uh, yeah, I think you know, like you know, like you said, it's obviously you know it's, it looks a bit different and stuff. But I, I, I'm not sure how if it will become widespread. I know that most coaches, you know, t- you know, teach the technical way of the textbook way, and I 
I'm not going to tell anyone else how to how to bat. <laughs> On your last couple of years in county cricket, we've got a question in from one of our listeners. Henry yeah. Clark asks, are there any bowlers that you faced in recent years in county cricket that you think are really underrated who have not played international cricket yet? Um, um, so this year, I thought um, I thought really impressive bowler was someone that I'd never re- I've never faced before, um, and also not not really heard of because of obviously being down south and he was in the north. Um, was Matt Milnes at Kent? Yeah, um, I think he moved from Nottinghamshire, um, and he was really he really impressed me. He's a good bowler, um, and I know he, I think he took fifty wickets in the end. I think he was an um, English uh, wicket taker, seam seam bowler in the, in Div One this year, last year. Right? Was he? Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Now he was. I thought he was really impressive. Bowls with good pace and moves, swings the ball. And um, yeah, he's he's definitely a good bowler. Good signing from Kent. Well, that, Seems... that's, that's a really good answer. To be honest, that's somebody that people, um, you know, like last season in particular with the World Cup and the Ashes going on, people probably watched and followed the championship less than usual. And Milne, yeah, who has actually he's gone on he's gone on the radar, but was seriously impressive last year. Um, so then as the, as the summer went on last year and the runs from 2018 came into 2019, what, what, how much were you thinking about that England call-up? Um, did you think there was a chance that you might play um, that summer itself? Or were you focusing more on scoring m- many runs as possible and uh, hoping to get on the plane for the winter tours? Um, look, yeah, obviously I'd, I'd, I'd be lying if I said that I, hadn't, I wasn't thinking about it because, you know, there's a lot of talk about it um, and stuff. But um, I think, you know, what I did well was I tried to just, just you know, park that as much as possible. Um, you know, I was very lucky in terms of the fact that I had good people to chat to around me because, you know, with all that speculation flying around, um, it was good to get stuff from my chest. I you know, a good support network and, you know, especially guys who've been in that situation before. So, like, you know, obviously, like, chatting to Belly, who was, was obviously around the environment, uh, Farb Race came in. Um, and they just said, like, you know, obviously it's, diff- it's difficult and players, obviously, and they'd seen players in the past when that sort of chat had been flying around and get too involved in it. And I, you know, sort of just tried to sort of try and concentrate and work as hard as possible in my own game and try and take care of what I was doing rather than watching what other people were doing and uh, yeah I mean obviously I didn't play in the summer but yeah I was obviously you know really pleased just to obviously get the chance to play this winter So what was it like when you got that first call up? Where were you? Who are you with? I was actually um, we were fielding against Yorkshire and it was supposed to be announced at 2pm and I was I was looking I was like 150 I was like I was looking up at Trouts because we were fielding. So I said to Trouts, like, you, you keep hold of my phone and if, if anyone hears anything or if, if, if Ed Smith calls or James Taylor or whatever, just, just like, sort of get a message on so I can come off and quickly just like, answer it or whatever. Got to two o'clock, nothing, nothing. I was like, I was losing my head a little bit in the field. So you I was like, I'm, I need to go off to the toilets, umpires. Oh, I was just like, because I was, I was wondering, like, it's supposed to be get announced at two and it got to like 2.30. So I went off and then I looked at my phone and I saw that Ed Smith had texted me saying, trying to, been trying to get hold of you, didn't realise you were fielding or something along those lines. Um, and then, uh, and he said, just, we'll, we'll chat later. Um, but you're in, you're, you're on, you're in the squad for New Zealand. And then I went out to field and it came on the tannoy, which is nice. And uh, yeah, it was just, you know what, it was weird. It was a weird feeling. It was more of a relief because I've been, for the, probably the week before, I remember after the Knots game where I got scored some runs, it was all I was thinking about. So I was really sort of, you know, wasn't sleeping much. And it was just the case of like, I was, 
whether I was in or not, it was just nice to know. So I could just sort of put, you know, get it out of my head a little bit. Yeah. So how, how, how was that first experience playing, playing for England? Because I don't know, like you, you sound like someone who, who was thinking about or like dreaming about playing for England for a long time. And that was a goal of yours. And you ended up making your debut in uh, relatively low-key circumstances, like an away tour in New Zealand, in front of quite small crowds. Uh, what, yeah. what was that like? You know, the biggest moment of your professional life and uh, you're playing 10,000 miles away from home. No, it wasn't too bad. I had my family out there. Um, and uh, I also, um, the family that I lived with in Perth when I played cricket over there for three years were over there. So I had a lot of familiar faces and... Um, yeah, it was um, it was obviously a really really cool moment to have them there, and yeah, obviously obviously the star was nervous when I batted, but I, you know after you know ten minutes or so, it felt like just another another innings, and um, you know that was uh, it was a good experience. I didn't score as many runs as I'd like to do in New Zealand, but um, it was a good experience and some good learnings for sure. Those first couple of tests didn't go amazingly in terms of run scoring for you, but were you still reasonably confident that you you'd done all right in those in those games? I mean. I'm not sure how much time you spend on, on Twitter, but people on Twitter were, were writing off, including some reasonably high-profile characters. Were, were you aware of that criticism? And did that come as, as a bit of a shock to you, considering you, you'd only batted, what, three times? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I knew the stuff that was being said. And, um, yeah, look, for, I, you know, it's, it's, all, it's always uh, tough to hear, when you, you know, especially after three innings. Obviously, I didn't play very well. Um, but I knew that... I knew that um, you know, once that I got told I was going to South Africa, that I'd be a good chance of playing in that first test. And um, for me, it's just a case of, you know, trying to work as hard as possible and um, keep doing the stuff that I've been doing in the summer and, and that stood me in stead. So I was just, you know, it almost just added a bit of determination for me. And um, yeah, like, you know, it was nice to, you know, score a few runs in South Africa and prove a couple of people wrong. But that can't have been something that you've experienced much before, just given that the scrutiny at test level is unlike anything that, at county level that can't have been easy receiving that criticism so early into your career no but I, to be fair when I left sorry I got a fair bit of stick so I was kind <laughs> of used to a little bit of uh, you know getting a bit of bashing on Twitter so um, look I yeah obviously it's a bit of a shock to the system but at the same time you know I suppose you got to try and try and make the best out of a bad situation and that was for me trying to sort of add it as fuel to to work really hard and try and you know prove prove people wrong i'm always um i remember last year speaking to ben duckett and joe clark on on this podcast and yeah, yeah. i'm always surprised that uh cricketers are on twitter like i just don't see the game like this <laughs> like you're you're open to so much crap from faceless trolls online Duffy's definitely very very vocal yeah yeah and like I I remember with you and Matt Parkinson over the winter it was people people who had basically never seen you guys play before and because you don't play in particularly uh, conventional ways people are writing you off uh, ludicrously soon moving forward to, to South Africa um I remember your, your 100 at Cape Town. What really struck me and I think a lot of other people from the innings was your, the trust you had in your game plan. Like in your first three and a bit test, you, you, you basically never drove, drove the ball at all. But as the ball got older and the bowler got more tired, you showed off your shots a lot more. 
Um, is that is that a fair observation? And if if so, how did you develop that mindset? Because it's increasingly rare among younger players these days to be that. Yeah, I mean, um, it's obviously it's just something that's sort of you know spending time at the crease for me and learning about my own game is you know I knew that um, you know especially in a game situation that we needed to sort of set a platform and I knew that you know in that situation in Cape Town that it was going to be a case of if we could get you know a solid platform there were guys that were going to come in and you know obviously score quickly and we could build a really really good lead so that was you know trying to learn from the mistakes from the first innings where I nicked off to Rabado from a good ball but at the same time being you know critical of myself I could have left it um you know it was just a case of trying to leave as well as possible and you know grind them down and um, and then sort of like you said, open up a little bit on the offside and put away some put away some uh, width on offer and um, yeah, I'm lucky it sort of came off a little bit. That must have been a, it. Must have been pretty fun that partnership you had with Stokes when you were approaching your hundred. I think was it was it third or fourth morning and Stokes just came fourth out. Or fourth morning, yeah. What what was that like being the other end of that? I thought Stokes was going to get to his hundred before you at one point. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, mate. Although it was obviously amazing to watch and fun to watch, it wasn't. It wasn't the most. Uh, you know, I would have much rather have been on a hundred when it was happening, so I could have enjoyed it a bit more. I was sort of more panicking about getting to my first hundred, but um, yeah, no, it was obviously pretty cool to watch. And uh, you know, it was. It, it took the pressure off me, and I could just go about my business under the radar while they were worrying about Stokesy. So uh, yeah, no, it was uh, it was good fun to watch and just relieved it all went well. Yeah. Then what was that moment like when you got to that first hundred? Yeah, it was cool, mate. Like, very, I felt emotional, um, uh, and yeah, it's just almost it, it goes goes quick. It goes so quick, like a blink of an eye. I wish, um, you know, you wish you get a chance to sort of relive it. Obviously, I hope I will score more hundreds, but um, yeah, no, it was good. Like, obviously, um, you know, to have Stokes out there and he was whacking it was obviously great, and. Um, yeah, just to put the team in a strong position to win the test match was uh, was a pretty cool feeling. Yeah, and then it wasn't you didn't just get hundred; it was a match winning hundred, and that test had that amazing finish with Stokes again taking those wickets to the back end of day five. There's an amazing um, uh, I'm not sure if it's a picture or it's a screenshot of the slip warden, and it was you, Crawley, Pope, and Best standing next to each other. You know, yeah. at that point none of you had played more than like four test matches. You were the oldest at 24. That must have been really cool playing in an England Test win with people so young. Like, it's an amazing experience that, uh, to, to go through together. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it was obviously. Yeah, obviously. I think for us all, it was, or maybe not Popey actually. It was our first Test win. So, um, you know, to, to, to obviously in, in those circumstances and uh, at that ground as well to get that win together was amazing. And we had a few days off actually after Cape Town, which was really nice. So. A few of the youngsters who don't have uh, wives and kids, who I think the wives and kids were all out there at the time. So we we spent a fair bit of time together after the test match. It was pretty cool to yeah like spend that time together and uh, sort of yeah sort of you know sort of look back on it with uh, you know with some great memories. Sibley's quite dramatic upturn in form. Uh, Belia championship hundred for four years, and then to, to England opener within an eighteen month period. Ben, can you think of any other players who had similarly dramatic upturns in form? Uh, yeah, well, I suppose Sibley's is dramatic in its own kind of way because there was the, uh, the, the such a spectacular start to his career when he was broke, broke 
records for being the youngest in certain categories to get a, a double hundred for Surrey, I think. Uh, and then, so even though he's not that old now, he has already obviously experienced a lot, as you as you talked about there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it, Ian Ward, Sky Sports' own Ian Ward, is sort of similar. Uh, who had a go at pro cricket, I think, in '92, and then fell out of the game. Had a lot of different jobs. So he was a uh, at one point uh, worked at Heathrow as an aircraft cleaner, and also was a mm. yeah also a petrol pump attendant at one point. Um, and then uh, and then came back and played a, a very important part in the that uh, dominant Surrey side, and then got his England caps in a. 2002, I think. 2001. So, how many years was he out for then? I think it was from like 92 to 97, so about five years. Um, yeah, the mid 90s. Yeah, just playing playing club cricket. Yeah, and it's not as if England was stocked for batting talent at that point either. So it's a uh, must have been a. It'd be interesting to see if he if he um, puts down his sort of consummate broadcasting act to being a petrol pump attendant. You know, he's coming into contact with a lot of people regularly, <laughs> lots of different backgrounds. Sort of honed his interview technique. He's got, he's got that. He is a good interviewer, obviously, and he's got that very. He's got a very good interviewer face. I think a really good sort of stern, like furrowed brow as he as he asks about like a uh, how was your sixty odd in Antigua kind of thing. Um, yeah, and you'd, you'd say, ask that other palm phone. He's like, do you, want, do, you want, do you want diesel or unleaded? And sort of nodding his head with his furrowed brow. You, you listening to the podcast won't quite get the effect of this, but uh, <laughs> it's a, a very good. Uh, Any, anyone else? I feel there should be loads. I've got here. I've got another Ian. Yeah, I, got, wait, I went for Ian Bell. On, a, really? on, on an international, on an international. Um, no, yeah, yeah. Because he started. Well, his first series with that two thousand, all he two thousand five Ashes. He was like wet behind the ears, and he was getting abused by Warren and that, and he looked like a little boy. And then, I think he got one fifty maybe at Old Trafford in that series. Maybe, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe scraped two fifties. And then gradually, and everyone used to say, you know, he only gets easy runs, all that sort of thing. And then. I guess he single-handedly well, he pretty he pretty much single-handedly won the Ashes for England in 2013 with three tons in three different tests. I think I think that's quite a good shot actually because because that was obviously the thing with Ian Bell where he'd only get a hundred when someone else got a hundred in the same innings, which is obviously that's that's quite a good problem to have as a test team. Uh, but you're, you're right, and I don't think Ian Bell gets the credit that he deserves really for being as good as he was in 10-11, but also. I think he was England's best batsman just about in the 2011 series against India when they won 4-0 and went to number one in the world and then also won the 2013 Ashes series. So England's two of England's best home triumphs in the last decade were down to Ian Bell largely, I think. Yeah, and, and two things going to say. Number one, I say it's, he still averaged like about 40 in Test cricket before the 2013 Ashes. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like a sudden like whoa this guy but he got almost but, got okay. abuse for that because it was against Bangladesh and he got like a triple ton maybe or, or a big double ton and, and he was like oh here goes Bell again when the going's easy getting yeah. massive runs yeah but the thing I was going to say was that I think there's, there's a forgotten test match in England's uh, series win in India in 2012-13 so a lot of people talk about how good Cook, Pete's and Swan Panasar were that tour but in the test that Root made his debut the fourth test in Nagpur I think Bell and Trot both got hundreds, or both pretty much got hundreds in a game that was really attritional. England batted at like two and over for three and a bit days across the two innings. Yeah, I suppose the thing with that is that, uh, I mean, that came that the thing about that series win is that it didn't just come uh, after the whole Peterson and the Safka thing. It also came after England had been smashed in, well, in a test in Sri Lanka and in the UAE. So there were a lot of 
like hand-wringing about how England batsmen could play spin, as there always is, but there was even more so then, especially because you had such a talented team who were still struggling with this age-old problem. And Ian Bell, I think, was one of the ones that people were more worried about, especially because on tracks that didn't turn so much, he looked like such a natural player of spin. He'd be able to come down the track so well and hit over the top. And he played an absolute horror shot in one of those games, I can't remember where, but where he came down the track, first ball, lofted it to mid-off or mid-on and kind of like walked off again, uh, just having obviously made up his mind while he was in the hut and then completely got it wrong. And so I think the, the, nag, the thing with the Nagpur one is that it wasn't the same type of track as had been at Mumbai, especially where Peterson and Cook played those incredible innings and it was very traditional. And also, I feel like in that game, so I think Coley and Dhoni batted for almost the entirety of day three, but too slowly to properly force a lead and there was a weird spell on the fourth that's when Cook ran Dhoni out on 99 yeah that's right yeah and on the fourth morning I think Ashwin was in with someone else and Ashwin kept just like knocking a single at the last ball of the over and they were sort of like why aren't England being the field in India were thinking but England were like well we only need to draw this game so we're, we're happy to go, to tick along at one and over for as long as you want and then eventually they realised and declared about 10 runs behind I think but by that point so, I mean, I mean, Bells and Trot's hundreds were valuable, but I think that... I mean, for example, in that series, Compton averaged the lowest of England's top-order batsmen, or of England's batsmen, but I think was uh, maybe England's third most valuable batsman in that series behind Cook and Peterson. But <laughs> another player that I found who very much improved was Darren Stevens, uh, obviously with the ball, especially. Um, so uh, he... Had, I just had the stats up. So up until 2011, no, 2010, he'd never taken more than 20 wickets in a first-class season. Uh, yeah, uh, and having started his first-class first class career in 1997, so that, it was only at that point that he started to bowl regularly. And I actually didn't realise that last year was actually, by average, his best-ever season with the ball, uh, 54 wickets at 17. Like, I knew he was good and good enough to sort of get that... Uh, slightly cathartic contract extension uh, but but yeah and in, in, in Div 1 as well which, what, what a champ um, so he's been going since 97 is that right so 97 yeah. to so, oh my god when were you born yes uh, 95 okay Two right in the middle of Ian Ward's petrol pumping days another name that came to me was was Jack Leach yeah he kind of so his first four seasons first class cricket he took Two wickets at 97, 13 wickets at 25, 8 at 35 and 16 at 26. So he actually did all right, but hadn't played that much. And then the 2016 year was the year that Somerset nearly won the championship. That was a day that uh, Middlesex won it on the last day of the season. Mm. And the end of that year, as somebody who people you know, people felt like he really should have gone on all the England tours to Bangladesh and India, but at the start of the year he was someone who people had barely heard of and he's basically continued at that level ever since um, so kind of like Sibley he was quite young but Sibley was only 22, 23 when he had the sudden upturn in form I've got two more nice both international ones obvi- there's a really obvious one in Steve Smith yeah brought yeah. in as a sort of jokey leg spinner who batted what five or six and I knew Ben I knew Ben would have his finger up at this <laughs> side bottom go on Ben Go on, Ben. No, on Smith. I think I think Ben's going to object. The, just the, the thing with Steve Smith is that he was he obviously was picked originally as a leg spinner to bat at eight, uh, but that was more to do with 
the Australian selectors wanting that new Shane Warne than that actually being what he was. Like, I think he was always really a batsman. And in the, in the Shield season, before he won a call-up as a leg spinner, he'd got 400s and averaged about 80, I think. So there were, there were the signs that he would be a very good batsman, even at that age. Uh, but you're obviously you're right, as an international player, it took him a, a while to get into his groove. But It took him a while, and also they... Which obviously isn't... You can see how the selectors were really clutching at straws because they picked Steve Smith to sort of be the the the, the dressing room banter merchant, and <laughs> anyone who's seen the test uh, can sort of see that that isn't clearly isn't his role. Any he's out of his comfort zone in that. So it was great. There, there was a press conference, wasn't there, during the ten eleven Ashes, where he sort of said, "Yeah, they've kind of picked me to kind of sort of bring a bit of fun to the group, bring a bit of jokes," and that that's exactly the kind of reason that England would pick players when when we were getting paced by Australia. You know, someone who could sort of lighten the mood. And that sort of thing, uh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a certain uh, lovability to a lot of these cricketers as well. Like D- David Steele was one that I came up with, and actually, I don't know if his how good or not his record was in the early part of his career. But he obviously did start very late as a 33 year old, and then was just very brave against fast bowling, if not prolific, and uh, was Sports Personality of the Year. Uh, obviously, the, the sort of the sore thumb in that list of cricketers to have won it. Uh, called him the bank, the bank clerk who went to war because he had his, his silver hair and his, and his spectacles. It has to be said. He was one of those 33-year-olds. So I'm 31, 32, not long off, and still look about, I mean, 15. But um, <laughs> Say so yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm aging in all the wrong places. But um, who are we talking about? David Steele, yeah. He, he looked ancient. He looked like 50 when he was playing and so when he was 33 and then I was reading something about um, Atherton something I mean I'm always reading about Atherton but he was 25 when he was made England captain again he always had quite an old face for his for his age so he sort of grew into his his age thing and Sibley is one one I was so shocked when I thought he was like he looks 40 anyway I don't know why we've gone down this sort of rabbit hole of appearances sorry about that well, it's entirely led by you as well. It's great that the, the one podcast that Dom Sibley is definitely going to listen to and you've chosen to say he looks about 40. Uh, um, yes, did, did you have any yes? Um, no, Leach was the one that stood out most. Um, let, let's move on to the Saturday night stat this week. Um, yes. Not perhaps as exciting as recent ones. I thought it was quite good, but didn't get the reception I thought it deserved. Um, from the point of Stuart McGill's test debut, 30th of January 1998, McGill had a better record in home tests than Shane Warne. 135 wickets at 27.68 versus 156 wickets at 30.42. And also, the record in tests they played together, McGill's is significantly better. He averaged about 22 compared to Warne's 27.28. Um, not suggesting that McGill should have played instead of Warne. I think he should have played a bit more often. McGill only ever played seven tests in Asia and had a very, very good record in Australia. I wonder if Maybe Australia could have played two spinners more often. Yeah, um, I, J- Joe Harmon just responded with basically just like seen it, didn't he? Yeah. You know, like when 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 you send a like when you send a meme that's really made you laugh to the group chat, oh, yeah. and that's that's the only response. And it's like, come on, yeah. sometimes you send memes that I've seen, and I don't say seen it. I uh, <laughs> at least send a ha 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 or something, you know. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, I mean, we had some good discussion on Twitter about that, didn't we? Uh, I think Tom Evans sometime wisdom writer and at the Liverpool Echo said that he feels that Shane Warne uh, was just worse on turning pitches because uh, Shane Warne had a poor record in India as well 
Um, and I guess, and his argument that it takes out the mystery from Shane Warne. Uh, if if there's only one that you can do because it's turning low, so there's like one ball that's obviously better than the the rest in a way. Then he can't have batsmen second guessing him, and uh, and and that's and that's where his effectiveness actually came, as well as having obviously the uh, the technical attributes to rip it a long way and land it where he where he liked essentially, um, which I thought was interesting. Did is there um, a school of thought where Warren saw him more sort of he because he, Warren's well known for being helpful to his own country spinners and other opposition spinners and all that sort of thing. Was there a school of thought that he perhaps wasn't... Him and McGill didn't rub along quite so well and maybe Warren was... There were too much of a rivalry maybe between them that they didn't ever share... I mean, I don't know how many tests they shared, but they didn't share a lot of test matches. So it's 16 tests they played together. I just can't imagine that doing anything other than spurring Warren on, though, if he, uh, if there's a little, little upstart nipping at his heels for him to... Just raise his game, um, but I, and I guess that the other thing with Warren is that they say that he sort of earned a lot of wickets for McGrath and for the Seamers, and maybe the same could be true of of McGill. If McGill was bowling a, a more four balls, so you felt you could get on top of him more, whereas Warren you just knew you had to play him out. Then maybe when they were bowling alongside each other, they would attack McGill because they knew they wouldn't be able to attack Warren, and therefore he got more wickets that way, possibly. Um, no, I think I think it's a good stat, yes. Thank you. Well done, and and definitely keep sending them. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, I definitely um, will. Don't worry. Um, I hadn't seen it. I think that's all we have time for on this show. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Jim. Listeners, if you've enjoyed the show, please tell your friends. We'll be back next week for a special Will Wizard Almanac special. If you're feeling particularly tired, please do leave a five star review on the podcast app. Podcast Network.